0: Good morning, my name is Andrew Stoddard, and the Old Testament reading is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy, exactly as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your oxen or your donkey, or any animals of any kind, or the immigrant who is living amongst you, so that your male and female servants can rest just like you. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Rachel, and the New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. in the message. The amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love
1: of God, the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The word of the
0: Lord. Thank you all for standing for the gospel reading. My name is Brian, and the reading is found in Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one, except, no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of our Lord Christ. Sure.
1: Oh, there it is. How are you on this fine fall Sunday? You're good. You're good. Usually, when um, you ask someone how they're doing, it's not long before they respond with something like, Well, I'm kind of busy right now, right? A couple of weeks ago, someone asked me, How are you doing, Glenn? And uh, actually, I wasn't busy. And he said, How was your week? And actually, I had a great week, and I had all kinds of extra time. I even came home early a few days and took my son to the park. One Monday, I, I, I came home in the afternoon and took Jonas out for ice cream, and I was feeling a little guilty because all of this was coming back to my mind when he said, how was your week? And, uh, and I said, it's been a good week. I mean, um, yeah, it hasn't been too, too crazy. In fact, I've had a lot of, uh, some downtime, and he's looking at me like, okay, great, And then a week later, same friend, we're having a similar conversation. How was your week? And again, I had another slow week. And so I said, no, no, it's, uh, I actually took some time this afternoon and was reading. and, And then I just felt guilty for saying that. So I texted him after the fact, and I said, you know, I, I do, I mean, a lot of weeks, like there's just a lot going on, and, 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 and you know, a couple of weeks before, we were going out with people for dinner and all this stuff, so this is just an unusual time that you're catching me, and, and he's not like my boss, he's, it's not Pastor Brady, he's not even checking in on my workflow, you know, and he's like, dude, you don't have to justify the fact that you had a slower week, like that's okay, you know, but do you know the feeling of like where busyness is kind of a badge? And that to be not busy, automatically you feel like you're lazy. And so it's either busyness or laziness. And we, we think in terms of just two extreme poles. And we're like, I have to show that I'm working hard. And I have to show that I'm important. Because if I say I don't really have that much going on now, it doesn't. maybe people will think that I'm not really doing my job. Maybe people will think that my job is not that hard. Maybe we'll think that, you know, and on and on it goes. So we're in this little two-part series called Addicted to Busy. And we'll wrap it up today. And it's true. Last week we said this. Not all busyness is a sign of unhealthiness. Not all busyness is the sign of unhealthiness. In fact, many times there are, there's a busyness because of, of unique situations or deadlines or family situations or whatever it may be. Some, a lot of times it's just stuff. But something happens to us along the way, and that's what the series is about. Something happens to us where we get used to a certain pace that we don't know what to do with ourselves. So last week we said, what, if, what does it mean to diagnose the problem? And last week we talked about, do we ever leave ourselves alone, or are we afraid to leave ourselves alone? Are we afraid to let ourselves stop and come face to face with our insecurity or with our fear fear? Or with our past. And we talked about the Jacob story from the book of Genesis. Where Jacob finally stops. And he comes face to face with himself. And he says his true name. But he also comes face to face with the God who renames him. And we talked about how deep down inside we don't want to let pace and busyness be a mask for a growing unhealthiness. So that was last week. This week, it's about finding rest. It's about saying, okay, so how do we actually let the Lord bring rest to our souls deep down inside? And the question maybe for us today is simply this. Do you ever stop? Can you stop? Or is it so hard? Are you so used to a particular pace that when you do stop, you feel guilty? You feel Bad, you feel lazy, you you have this voice that says, Hey, the Protestant work ethic, you're supposed to be doing something productive, you're supposed to be making something happen. Now, listen, caveat some of you could use a little more Protestant work ethic. (laughs) Okay, we did our series this summer on a theology of work, that's important. But many, many of us feel like we don't have a theology of stopping, of resting. Why, why should I stop? No, there's so much more to be done. And it's so difficult to walk away from things that are not yet completed. Can you stop? Do you stop? The Bible has an interesting way of talking about this, the scriptures, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, because it doesn't have, it doesn't talk about stopping just in the sense of vacation. Vacations are great. But vacations are, are more about recreation. They're about fun. I submit to you that we've become a vacation culture because we've lost the spiritual version of rest. That we've become a vacation culture living, I'll just binge and I'll work, 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 and then let's get out of here and go to the beach or go to the mountains. So so we don't really know this other beautiful word that the Hebrew Scriptures talk about, the word Sabbath. We don't know that word, so we just have vacation culture, which is actually... uh, I suggest a secularized version of spiritual rest. Now, vacations are great. I love them. Take them. Believe in them. Use all your vacation days. But this isn't a sermon about vacations. This is a sermon about rest. The spirituality and the theology of rest. There's two times in the Hebrew Scriptures where God speaks to His people about Sabbath. The first time is in Exodus 20 when He's giving the list of the Ten Commandments for the first time. And if you turn there with me, Exodus chapter 20, we'll start here in verse 8. And we're going to compare it to Deuteronomy 5, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. And we're going to compare the two because the first few verses are nearly identical But the last few verses of each are different, and there's something significant about it. As you're turning there, finding it in your electronic device or whatever, the word Sabbath in its simplest form means to cease, to stop, to stop. Yes, of course, it means much more, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But in its simplest form, the Shabbat is just about ceasing, just stop, stop. Let it stop. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Right away we see something very different. We're used to hearing that God is holy. We're used to hearing that we as his people are holy. But time as holy? Is there really such a thing as holy time? Can a day be marked off as holy? The idea of holy is to separate, to set apart, to mark it off and what God is saying is there's a certain time that you're supposed to separate from all other time. And how? What, what do we do to mark this off? Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it. Not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animal or the immigrant who's living with you. Why? Because if they're working, you're going to be drawn into work somehow too. Right? Right? And then he says, here's the reason here, verse 11, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is why. From the Exodus passage, we see this, that Sabbath is rooted in creation. Or to say it in a more straightforward way, when we rest, we remember that God is God creator. When we stop, we remember that God is creator. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that it doesn't all depend on me or you. Now, we laugh because if I say it that way, you say, "Well, of course it doesn't. But actually, how, many of you might relate to this, but there's this little voice in your head that says some version of this. If I don't, then it won't. If I don't do this, then it won't get done. Glenn, you don't understand. I don't know what your pastor's schedule is like, but if I don't do this, then it won't happen or it won't get done. The Sabbath is a way of saying, no, stop and see that you didn't make this world, that you didn't set it in motion that there is a God who is the Creator, who is the Sustainer, who is the one who breathes life and keeps it in motion. There was a week this summer that um, we were going away, and someone had given us um, a place up in, in the mountains, and we took our family. And we went up there, and, and uh, I deleted from my phone the Twitter app, the Facebook app. And I delinked my email accounts from my phone. Like uh, this may not be a big deal to you, but this is a big deal to me. And I had the thought that oh, sure, watch the week that I do this, some controversy is going to blow up on the internet. Forgetting, of course, that every week a controversy blows up on the internet. All social media is is outrage about a diff- different outrage, right? So, and then cat photos. So. Um, <laughs> So I realized that just not having those apps on my phone made me less willing to go to Safari and log in and check. Now, it so happened that sure enough, by the end of that week, some issue had blown up on the interwebs about some theological discussion and -and so-and-so was no longer, must be an apostate because he had this particular view. And I thought, I've got to weigh in on this. And so I just you know, just briefly just kind of logged in and just waited a little bit. And then I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And, and then I thought, I've got to write a blog about the many different ways you could, ha- you could think about, you know, the Genesis stories and, and all of this stuff. And I just want to help, you know. And I, I even did, eventually, when we returned from vacation, I even did actually just draft a little thing. And I thought, I'm going to post this. And then I thought, let's just see what happens if I don't post it. And an amazing thing happened. The world kept going. (laughs) Somebody else blogged about it. Somebody else answered these questions. Somebody else addressed it. God was at work through someone else. (gasps) And the church survived. Now, I'm saying this facetiously. But when you stop, you get a chance to see that God the Creator is the one who's at work. He made this. It doesn't rest on you. But there's something else. What else do you think of when you think of the creation story? You know what I think of? I think of God blessing it and calling it good. God blessing his world and calling it good before it's even begun to produce a bounty for him. God, how how can you delight in your world when it hasn't yet given anything back to you? Surely after the first harvest, then you can say, Aha, this is a good word. What, what, what? How can you delight in it and call it good when it's just begun? You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus beginning his ministry and getting immersed in the waters of baptism by John, the heavens opening up over Jesus, and the thundering voice overhead that says, This is my Son in whom I am well Pleased. And most of us think that should have come at the end of Jesus' ministry, right? Okay, okay, I get that if like Jesus had done a miracle already. No miracles yet. I would understand that if Jesus had given this great exposition of the kingdom called the Sermon on the Mount. No, 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 no sermons yet. So what had Jesus done that God was well pleased with him? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. How can that be? You see, the Creator delights in His creation just because you are His creation. And the Sabbath is a moment to remember that. To remember that God does not delight in you because of what you produce for Him. God does not delight in you because you're a good investment of His blood and His body. God does not delight in you because you've, you know, really... God delights in you simply because... He created you, and the Sabbath is a chance to stop and say, God, you're the creator, and I am the creation in whom you are well pleased. Amen? This weekend on Friday, we went with our family um, up to Mueller State Park and went on a nice uh, little short hike, you know, uh, the hike number seven and eight up to Raven Ridge Outlook. It's a half a mile out there and a half a mile back, just perfect for me. I mean, I mean for our kids, you know. It's just the right distance. And you're standing there on the edge, and you're looking at the colors and the aspens quaking in the wind, and you stop and you think, this is beautiful. I mean, this is an enchanted world. And you realize that God, you feel just for a moment His delight in His world, filling His creation. And then you stop and you say, and you delight in me, and you delight in me, in the beauty that you've put in my heart, and in my, you, you take joy in me. The Sabbath is a time to stop and feel that. The next text in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5. Verse 12, keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy, exactly as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or your daughters, your male or female servants, sound familiar, your oxen or your donkeys or any of your animals or the immigrant who is living among you so that your male and female servants can rest just like you. So far, it's a repeat. Now, Deuteronomy, we don't know exactly how much later Deuteronomy was written, but it's very possible that Deuteronomy was written way after the fact, after the people of Israel have have left Egypt and wandered through the wilderness and entered the promised land, and after they've had kings and enough. Bad kings that the kingdom eventually split in two and the northern half was taken um, by Assyria in 722 and scattered and the southern half, Judah, was taken around 586 BC by Babylon and, and, and kept as exiles. It's possible that Deuteronomy is finally being written down as they're in exile and then listen to what he says. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. But the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, keep this as a holy day because you can. You used to be slaves where you couldn't stop. You could never stop. More bricks, less straw. Keep going, keep producing, keep going, keep producing. You used to not be able to stop. But now... When you rest, remember that God is Savior. Maybe to say it a different way, remember that you are free. Remember that you are free. That you're not in bondage to any kind of legalism or performance. You know, the, a funny thing happens about to us when we come to faith is, we, we, we know that Jesus has saved us and our sins are forgiven and all that, but we kind of transfer an old way of working and living and we now assign it to God. So where else you had evil, wicked taskmasters and now you're convinced that this is what God is like? So you can't ever stop because surely God wants us to keep going and going and going and going and going. And your picture of God is now skewed because even though you're free, you're convinced that God is just like Pharaoh in Egypt. You're convinced that Yahweh must be just like Pharaoh. He must want us to keep going and going and going. And so many of us have just transferred our bondage into new spiritual kinds of bondage. You don't have the old bondage to sin, but you have new spiritual bondages, which is religion, religious kind of bondages, where we say, well, I'm supposed to. I've got to. I need to do this. Forgetting the picture that Jesus showed us. Luke tells this amazing story of the crowds who were sick pressing in all around Jesus And then Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Not just, and that day Jesus withdrew, but Jesus often withdrew. In other words, Luke was saying, look, this was kind of a thing. People would press in with all of their needs and someone would say, where's Jesus? Like, uh, oh, he's, yeah, he's doing that thing again (laughs) where he sneaks out. Like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, there's. How can you stop now? Listen, church, if the Son of God could stop, you and I can stop. There's no spiritual bondage that says, no, I've got to keep going. You don't understand. My work is especially holy. My work is especially critical. Souls hang in the balance if I don't work. But Jesus often withdrew. And then the very next verse says that others... We're gathering and then Jesus comes and it says, "In the power of God was present with him to do many miracles. Can I say to you that if if you let God be present in your rest, he will be present in your work. That if you stop and let the Spirit of God come and fill, that you'll end up feeling the strength of this when you go back in. You don't work as slaves. You work as sons and daughters who are free. Sons and daughters who recognize that God is the Savior. I've mentioned to you several times that I, I see a spiritual director, and I think it's a healthy thing. We're talking about we've been talking about mentoring in our adult Sunday school classes here, and the need for all of us to have people speaking into our lives, and for us to have others that we pour into. And I've got a few different uh, older guys that speak into my life, but I also have a spiritual director because I, I need someone who is specially. Um, trained and skilled and practiced in helping me pay attention to my own soul. And very often I'll go, we, we meet once a month, and very often I go in, and it's on a Monday, which is probably dangerous as a pastor anyway, on Mondays, you know. But very often I'll go in and I'll say something, I'll share something, and, and he says, Glenn, why are you standing over yourself in judgment? Maybe it's not that God is the taskmaster. Maybe it's that you are. That you've got yourself in bondage. Because you stand over yourself and you say, I should be a better husband. I should be a better wife. I should be a better mom. I should be better. I should do better at my job. I should do better with the kids. I should do I should keep the house clean. I should cook more. I should clean. I I should, I should. Standing over yourself. And the Sabbath says, Can you stop? And recognize that you're free. You're free. The voice of Jesus is the voice of the same one who said, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, and neither do I condemn you. That's the voice of God that says, I'm not standing over you. Sabbath is rooted in creation and salvation. It reminds us that we're the created ones that God delights in, and we're the rescued, saved, redeemed ones who are free to not work out of performance-driven, fear-driven legalism. So how do, how do we do this? What does this look like in our daily lives? What, 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 what might be some of the things we can do? I want to make three suggestions. The first two are pretty practical. And the first is this, plan. Now, this is not the moment where I give you a bunch of pithy sayings about if you fail to plan, you plan to fail and blah, 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 you know, no, no, I I just mean the simplicity of saying, see ahead and, and build it in. It's interesting that even for the ancient people of God, the people of Israel, they needed A rhythm. Every seventh day, this is what you'll do. Every seventh year, this is what you'll do. Every seventh year of sevens, on the 50th year, this is what you'll do. Why? Because of bondage? No, because if you don't plan and build it into your schedule, it ain't going to happen. That even in ancient days, there's no romanticizing, you know, the, the olden days. Remember the olden days when we could just rest? No, there were no days like that. You always had to plan To make room for this. Plan to kind of say, Okay, okay, how how are we going to do this? The Greeks had a myth. One of their gods among the titans of gods was this this God who was so fearful because of a prophecy that was given. There was a prophecy that was given that one of his sons was going to overthrow him. And so this particular Greek God was so nervous about this prophecy that the first child he had This is kind of gross. He ate him. Yeah, Greek myths. They're kind of, yeah, right? He consumed his child. And then every offspring after that, he consumed. Because he was convinced, I'm not going to let anyone over there. And he kept consuming his offspring. Just nasty. What kind of a story is this? And the Greeks called this god Kronos, the god of time and schedule. (laughs) from which we get our word chronology. Isn't it just like time to just keep consuming what's ahead? Like (laughs) Pac-Man. Here we are. It's like, oh my gosh, it's October. Where did September go? Kronos ate it. (laughs) (laughs) Time has a way of just chewing up what comes next. I love how Mark Buchanan in his book, The Rest of God, talks about the difference between chronos and kairos. Kairos in the New Testament shows up as a way to talk about a planned time, an appointed time, a special time, a season. And we don't want to make too much out of just purely linguistic differences, but I think there is a concept we could think about. And and Mark says it this way, he says, chronos is when we ask, what time is it? What time is it? What's next on my schedule? What do I have tomorrow? What are my appointments? What are the meetings? And Kairos says, what is this time for? What is this for? Can we stop? Can we, can we stand back? So what, is, what is this time for? Well, Holly and I, twice a year, try to just get a, a, maybe at least a day, maybe two in January and in August where we just kind of you know, get away and just say, well, what is this time for? For? What is this next stretch of months? What's this next season for? And inevitably, you know, the conversation will circle back around homeschooling and the kids because that is so much of her world. And I keep saying, okay, but, but what if we zoom out a little bit, honey? Like, what's this season for? And we both try to pray and try to ask the Lord that. Because if you don't stop to say, what is this time for? K- old Kronos will just consume it up. <laughs> got to stop and plan and say, well, when are we doing this? And, and she's so helpful to me in saying, okay, if you've got an overseas trip this month, let's black out the next month. Plan, which leads to the second thing, leaving margin. Leave margin in your schedule. Leave gaps. Now, I'm one of those people that <laughs> I like to call myself an optimist about time. I believe that I can do this many things in this amount of time. I, I, I can't. But then you have one of those days where you're just running late to everything. Can I get a witness, somebody? Come on. <laughs> Let's just do confession right here, right now. You know, like, yes, Lord, merciful God. I tend to think, well, if I fit this at one and then this at two and then this at three, and you're like, oh, no, I just didn't leave any margin in my day. The Old Testament I think it's in Leviticus, they said, when you harvest your fields, leave extra in the fields. Don't harvest it all the way. Leave the corners and the edges of the fields. That's very strange. Why? So that when the immigrants and the foreigner and the poor among you come at night, most likely, looking for some food, there's a little bit left over for them. The purpose of margin is so that you have something to give to the the person in need. That's not just true of money. That's true of time, isn't it? That we don't, we, we, in the money example, we can think, okay, don't squeeze every, every dollar out of profit out of this thing because maybe there's, leave some room for someone else to be able to get something here. But what about with time? If you schedule it all the way so full, you have no time, no margin for the unexpected to happen, for the need. So I would love to help so-and-so, but I just really can't be there because I'm just so, I've left no margin. Years ago they did a study of seminary students and they, I think they divided them in half and, and half of them they said, you have to give a, a devotional sermon here in five minutes and the walk from A to B was about a three, four minute walk. And, and the other half of them they said, you've got nothing on the schedule. And they put a homeless man, a beggar that, that was an actor on the street begging and they wanted to see who would stop. Kind of a modern day parable of the good Samaritan. Who would stop? And the ones that had somewhere to be in five minutes did not stop. Very, very low percentage. Because they're like, oh, not because they had no compassion, but because they had no margin. Like, oh, I would, be, oh, sorry, I got to go. And of the students that had margin, that had nothing on the schedule next, a greater percentage of them were able or did stop. Why? Because sometimes the difference is not that you don't have a heart. Sometimes it's that you you don't have margin. You don't have, you've not left yourself extra. One of the things I'm learning is that every yes means less. Every yes that I say means less for what I've already said yes to. Every yes to something new means less for what I've already said yes to. I'm like, I'm like, throwing lyrics at you today, man. I'm like rhyming. And I'm learning this because I, I want to be an accessible person. I want people to feel like, and so the other day I was chatting with, with Evan and, and one of the other guys, and, and uh, I was saying, man, I just sometimes I get my inbox, I get messages from people. The result of maybe sometimes going to speak at a conference is I want to be accessible so I'll stay and after a workshop and talk with people and they'll say hey can I email you sometime and in the moment I always just say yeah sure happy to help because I don't want to be that guy I don't want to be the guy that speaks and then leaves right or over the years you know we've had I used to run the New Life School of Worship so we've had students that have graduated and become worship leaders at different churches so I'll get an email from them once in a while hey could you help me out with the theology of blah 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 can you help me sort through this issue be there for them, so I try to respond. And Evan just kind of looked at me and he goes, Yeah, it's not do you want to be an accessible person, it's to whom can you be accessible? Because if you say you want to be accessible to everyone, actually, you're going to be accessible to no one. And that's true, isn't it? That sometimes you've got to say, You know what, in order to give my best, to the people that I've already said yes to, my church, my family. In order to give my best to the people that I've already said yes to, I need to say no to some others. I mean, maybe what's remarkable about Jesus in the Gospels is all the cities He didn't go to, all the the urban centers He did not travel to, all the crowds He did not speak to. We see that as like excess but you know what? Excess is just a negative way of, of saying margin. <laughs> extra. Gotta leave some extra. Learning to say that. So sometimes, people, I, you know, I, I'm learning when people always preface it with like, Hey, I know you're super busy, but could you spare an hour to consult me and helping our church transition from modern worship to a neo-liturgical thing like what you guys are doing over here? And I want to say yes, because especially out of guilt, because they've just said, I know you're super busy, but... <laughs> and I end up saying, you know, I would love to help, but I've got to give my best to what I've already said yes to. And I said yes to a woman named Holly 13 years ago. I said yes to our four children, and I said yes to a wonderful congregation that I love. I, I need to give my best to these yeses. So I'm sorry. I, I just, either I say I can't manage that right now, or I say... Uh, Why don't you try me back three months from now? And if they really want to, they will. And if they don't, the world keeps turning. Amazing. Okay. (laughs) They figure it out somehow. The third and final thought on this is to look for holy invitations. Look for these little moments where it just might be that the Spirit of God is inviting us into this. See, some of you, you're hearing this and you're like, Glenn, I'm just like, dude, you don't get it. Like, I can't stop. It's not even my choice. It's my boss. He works on Saturdays. He's emailing me, texting me constantly. Or you have that other kind of job where you're taking care of little people and they just don't stop, you know? You know? Like in the movie, Mom's Night Out. Now, I've seen it. You know, it just does not quit. Your job just doesn't stop. Or you're caring for an elderly parent. You're like, this does, this does, there's no end to this. How do I do this? The other day, I came home and Holly was telling me about her day. And it was a Tuesday, we homeschool our kids. We have four kids, nine and under. But two day, uh, one day a week, our two girls, our two older girls, go to um, a one-day thing at, at, at TCA, at the cottage program. And so... Tuesdays are a chance for, for Holly to get a little break in, but inevitably there's always something else. And so, you know, Jane naps in the afternoon, Jonas doesn't, the girls were at cottage, and it was that late afternoon point and she was feeling like, I, I'm, I just need to stop and just take a little bit of time for myself, just, just right, I just need to stop. And you, she could hear Jane already kind of talking in her crib, like she's awake. And she's like, oh, Jane's going to be fine. Jonas can play with Legos. The girls will be home in like 20 I just need to stop right now. So she makes herself a cup of coffee, because you need coffee a few times in the day with little kids. Brings the mug up, gets in, gets in bed with the book. She's ready just, just, just 15, 20 minutes. You know? And she sits down, and it's one of these mugs that years ago we bought from the Goodwill because it was just a cool design. And as she's sitting, just finally gets all settled and she's holding the mug, and it just totally dismantles from the handle. Just, and coffee goes everywhere, all over her, all over the bed, just everywhere. And she's just like, oh my gosh, what? And then she decides, this is not going to stop me from having my time. So she scoots over to the other side of the bed and reads her book and says, I'm going to take these next 15 minutes. It's awesome. Because sometimes you've got to take it where you find it, right? There are these Selah moments, you know, in the Psalms where the psalmist is pouring out his heart and he says, let's just stop. Let's just stop. And sometimes we wait for the conditions to be perfect. Oh, Glenn, I hear you. I get that. Oh, Sabbath. It's just another talk to make me feel guilty, to stand in judgment over myself. no, 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 no. No, actually... The whole idea of looking for holy invitations is realizing that God is in all of it. See, throughout the Christian spiritual tradition, there's really been kind of two modes of talking about spiritual practices. The first is kind of the, the rule of St. Benedict, the Benedictine approach, somewhere in the 400s where he developed hours to pray and certain, a certain rhythm, a certain pattern, the rule of life that Benedict developed. And many of you, when you hear about that, you think, that is me. I need structure. I need schedule. I need discipline. I am a Benedictine at heart. And the rest of you are like, I'm doomed. I'll never be a saint. I can't do this. And fortunately, a thousand years or so after Benedict, there was another man named Ignatius. And the Ignatian way was much more about contemplation in action. And at first when he developed, when he was developing this, people were not sure about this. Like that sounds, how, how can you pray as you're on your way? I mean, that just seems like, that seems like you're compromising, bro. Don't you need like a 5 a.m. quiet time? I mean, what do you mean you pray as you're on your commute? And Ignatius says, God is in everything, not in a pantheistic sense, but God is present here with me. How can I contemplate him as I'm on the way? My spiritual director talks to me very often about invitations. And sometimes I'll be saying, Well, this is a major thing, and, and, and I don't know what to do with this. And I'm always talking about a problem as if it were something to remove. And he always turns it and says, Could this be an invitation? And after like three or four times of hearing that, I'm like, dude, you are so full. Of, I mean, like, what, what does that even mean? And I'm slow, but I'm getting it. That we're always trying to remove the thing instead of saying, maybe God is calling me deeper through the thing. And so he so I've got this darkness and this, this anxiety and I just need God to just take it away and then I can be a good Christian again. And what if God is saying, find me in the darkness because there I am. Walk with me in the dark, I am there. So walk, I just, there's too much chaos and there's stress and there's this illness and there's this situation and I don't know how to deal with it. And God, maybe someday things will get better and God is saying, no, even in the midst of that, I am there. You don't have to wait for the conditions to get better. You don't have to wait till you have no more fear or no more chaos or no more stress or no more doubt or no more darkness or no more anxiety or no more sadness. You don't have to wait for it to change. You can say, Spirit of God, help me see that even in this, you're inviting me to walk with you. I think of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is this beautiful psalm about Jesus as our shepherd. And we love the first part. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Like, yes, I would like to lie down anywhere, really. <laughs> you know, like when you're going through an airport connection and you've missed your flight, but you got up at 4 a.m. for the first one and you're like, I got a three-hour delay. Like, I- can I lay down somewhere, you know? Leads me beside still waters. You're like, I can't wait. I just, I, got, I need that. But then the psalmist says, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Think about this even in the presence of my enemies, even when I'm surrounded by, by debt and deadlines and delays and a, an overbearing boss and, and, un, and sick children and, and elderly parents and all this, even when I'm surrounded by all of these things, even there God can provide a table for me? Yes, even there. Sabbath is not just about saying, well, I need the ideal day. There are no conditions in which the Lord cannot provide you a feast. There are no no circumstances during which the Lord cannot make a banquet for your soul. Surely, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Chasing us. Chasing us down. Jesus, in the gospel reading that we heard today, said, All of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. Rest doesn't come from another hour in front of the TV. Rest doesn't come from clearing out your inbox. Rest doesn't come from Netflix. Rest, and all those things may be fine. But rest, the rest you're really looking for, comes from Jesus. Jesus who says, I'm I'm here. Even in the darkness, I am here. Our New Testament reading was Paul saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, the beauty about believing in the Trinity is that the Spirit of God is always with you. The Holy Spirit is there. God is with you. As you're rushing to catch the next flight, as you're scrambling, as you're waking up in a different hotel room, as you're dealing with throw up on the kids' beds, as you're doing oh, and all of that, just oh, come Holy Spirit. You're right here. You're right here. Or maybe that older, more simple prayer, help God. <laughs> he says, I'm, I'm here.